You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. The images out of Bucha this week have uh, alerted the world to the atrocities playing out in Ukraine. Outrage and anger are some of the words used to describe how Ukrainians are reacting to those images by Washington Post foreign correspondent Isabel Kershudian, and she joins me now from Odessa, Ukraine. Isabel, welcome to First Look. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, we woke up to the news of a Russian missile strike on a train station in eastern Ukraine, and this comes as Ukraine is still reeling from the massacre of Bucha. Talk about how other cities around the country are reacting to the news and images out of Bucha. Yeah, I was recently at a restaurant in Odessa, and um, you know, here things are still pretty peaceful. There haven't been any major attacks, but you know, just the waitress I was talking to, all of a sudden she started asking me about Bucha and what I thought, and um, she just started crying, and she didn't understand how you know the Russian foreign ministry and Russian government is calling this fake, but. You know, also just the images she had seen had instilled really just such anger in her. I think that's the biggest difference I've seen in Ukrainians the longer this war has gone on, is people have gone from just being really sad and, you know, devastated and shocked to now just being very, very angry by what they're seeing the Russians do uh, to their fellow citizens. In one of your dispatches this week, Isabel, you used the term overlord to describe the Russians who have been terrorizing residents in Ukrainian towns. What is the likelihood that the brutality of, of Bucha, where civilians wantonly, wantonly were killed, is being visited upon other Ukrainian cities and towns? I'd say it's pretty high. I mean, we're starting to see more stories like that emerge. Um, where we were in Southern Ukraine, kind of around the Mykolaiv region, uh, Russians occupied some towns there for about 10 days, and we didn't see mass killing in, you know, to the scale that what happened in Bucha, but, um, you know, there were certainly some instances of torture, murder, um, and kind of more frequent cases of looting, um, just lots of threats from the Russian kind of invading forces. Um, a lot of the citizens told us about how you know, Russians would just come, kick them out of their houses, they would threaten them at gunpoint, um, things of that sort. There were some, you know, kind of accounts of men being beaten uh, at a school where the Russians had kind of set up base. Uh, so I think what's, you know, on the mind of a lot of Ukrainians right now, um, and really a lot of the world in general, is how many buchas there are that we just don't know about yet. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. oh, where sorry, go ahead. We well, I just, I think, you know, you think about a place like Mariupol where there hasn't really been any cell service or connection. We don't really know what the picture is like there, a city of, you know, about 400,000. I think there are other places in the country where we just, we don't know the full scale of atrocities that could be committed. You know, Ukrainian officials, including um, Ukrainian President Zelensky, have called what Russians are doing a, quote, genocide. Is that view widely shared among Ukrainians? Among Ukrainians, definitely. I mean, I, I think, you know, when this war started, um, 
you know, people were certainly angry at the Russians. They were afraid of the Russians, but I don't know that they expected the level of horrors, you know, to be this, where um, it's one thing to, you know, shell civilian areas um, with cluster munitions. We could say that is um, definitely a war crime and, you know, horrible, but it's another to just, you know, shoot defenseless people to torture them in grotesque ways, to then turn their bodies into weapons, you know, attached to tripwires, to mines. Um, I think that is where, you know, the level of, you know, kind of, there really are no words to describe what it is, but I, I think that's even crossing another line where Ukrainians certainly feel this is genocide, mm -hmm. yes. So what most people probably don't know, um, in fact, probably everyone doesn't know this, Isabel, but you are usually based in Moscow. So I'm wondering, what are the Russian people seeing about this war? Do they know how Vladimir Putin's actions have isolated their nation? They're certainly feeling it in their wallets right now, um, you know, where prices for pretty plain goods uh, carrots, potatoes, sugar, things of that sort have skyrocketed. Um, you know, the economy has taken a hit from the U.S. and other, you know, European sanctions and various private businesses pulling out. But social media, a lot of the big kind of social medias that we think about, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, that's all blocked. Um, really, they're getting a very censored version of events from uh, state media on television uh, that you know, is not showing them images of Bucha. In fact, if you used the Yandex search engine, which is the most popular one um, in Moscow recently, and you Googled or searched rather in that uh, Bucha, you would not see any images of bodies on the streets. You would see what Bucha looked like uh, before the war started. Um, so that just gives you a sense of the censorship. But, you know, young people, they have a VPN. Um, they're able to still access independent information. Um, but it's hard to break through when, you know, the government is saying this is a lie, you know, these are crisis actors, um, this didn't happen. And, you know, I think a lot of Russians want to believe that's true. I don't think it's an easy thing to accept that, you know, your military went in and, you know, murdered a bunch of people just for the sake of killing them. <laughs> You know, um, th there was a poll out last week that I found astounding among, um, among the Russian people that showed that Vladimir Putin's popularity is on the upswing. Um, if I remember right, if I remember correctly, it's back up into the 80%. What do you think, how would, what would you attribute that to? Is that because of the limited uh, information that they have to what's really happening in Ukraine, or is that the result of a dictatorship where people know if they don't say that the guy is popular, that they could be in trouble? It's probably a combination of both. Um, I do think if someone calls you, um, even if they say this is an anonymous poll, uh, the level of repression and kind of paranoia about who's listening is high enough that you're going to answer, uh, yes, I support the government. Um, because if you don't, it's pretty clear that um, you could be jailed uh, or worse at this point. Um, but I do think that the propaganda machine that the Kremlin has is, you know, well established and it's very strong right now. It is working. Um, I think if people were 
we saw a lot of opposition to the war around Russia when it first started. Um, but I do think some people have come around because they are being convinced um, by their government, which is lying to them, that, um, you know, Ukrainians are Nazis, that, um, you know, Ukraine is a threat to them, that this needs to happen, even though we know this is an unprovoked war. Um, so it, it is a combo of both. I think a lot of people who were in opposition have um, left the country, you know, quite simply. Um, and, you know, those who have stayed are kind of jumping on the bandwagon uh, mm -hmm. because the level of, you know, information, you know, and kind of this campaign um, from the Kremlin down is like that. Um, I also, you know, I hear from Ukrainians here who have family in Russia and, you know, they're trying to talk to their family and saying, this is real, this is happening. You know, I saw my neighbor's house get destroyed and their relatives in Russia are saying, no, that's not true. It's fake. Incredible. We've got less than a minute left, but I have to ask you this because you reported this week that some experts believe the Russian withdrawal is really from Kiev is merely just an effort uh, and an opportunity for the Russians to regroup. Um, is, the, the, is the conventional wisdom there in Ukraine that the Russians are regrouping, <clears throat> will be regrouping in Eastern Ukraine for really an all out battle in that part of the country. Yes, it does seem that the Russians are now going to focus really on the Donbass region, which is, um, that includes Mariupol, that, in, you know, kind of that's that region that's been at war already for eight years between Ukrainian forces and the Russian backed separatists. Um, so it does seem as though things are really going to kind of focus there. Um, but I don't think anybody in Kyiv is letting their guard down. It is possible that the Russians will try to take Kyiv again. But the reason for this shift is simply because the Russian military appeared to have overextended themselves. And um, this is kind of a way to still focus on an area where they can make some gains. Isabel Kershudian, Washington Post foreign correspondent there in Odessa, Ukraine. Thank you very much for coming to First Look. Stay safe. Thank you. We're going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find my colleagues, Christine Emba and Charles Lane, both Washington Post columnists. Charles, Christine, welcome to First Look. Good morning, Jonathan. Thanks for having me. All right, let's keep talking about what's uh, happening in Ukraine. And Chuck, the Russians have been bombing civilian targets this morning. Uh, Russian missiles hit a train station uh, where Ukrainians, Ukrainians were using to flee the war, using it to evacuate. President Biden has said that Vladimir Putin has committed war crimes. President Zelensky calls what's happening in his country a genocide. These words are sometimes used interchangeably, but they have legal implications, don't they? Talk about that. Well, the legal implication of the accusation of genocide is pretty extraordinary because that takes you all the way back to the Nuremberg trials after World War II and the, uh, you know, the tremendous uh, uh, accusation that was levied against the former Nazi leadership. I think we're a long way from ever getting to such a trial because the war is still going on. The evidence is difficult to gather under those circumstances and so on. I think for the time being, 
um, the, uh, the these are going to sort of remain at the political level. They won't have any legal operation to them. Just to be clear, the definition of genocide is the deliberate attempt to destroy uh, uh, an ethnic or national group in whole or in substantial part. And that's going to be that's going to be a difficult standard to meet. I think the crimes against humanity standard. Uh, mm. which is another one which doesn't necessarily hinge on the destruction of an ethnic group, has definitely been met. And if there were ever a, a decisive outcome to this where you could actually bring these generals and Putin into, into court, uh, there'd be a strong case against them. Mm -hmm. Chris, uh, Christine, General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said this week that he expects the war to carry on for months, if not years. So far, the United States and NATO have, have stayed out of direct contact, direct conflict with the Russians. But how long do you think the alliance will be able to walk this fine line? I mean, I do think that they're going to continue to walk it for as long as humanly possible. The American people have said that they don't want to be involved in another war, especially one that does not directly involve the United States. That said, we've seen the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, go out in almost every possible way, at the Grammys, on the news, to the UN Security Council, to continue to ask for aid and involvement. I think that the international community's eyes uh, and the eyes of uh, its people will be on the United States, on NATO, on other leads to provide what assistance they can. I mean, just today, uh, the Ukrainian defense minister asked for more modern weapons, weapons assistance from the United States and from Europe that didn't date back to the Soviet era. There are still things that the US and other countries can do to help without fully putting boots on the ground. But how long they can slow walk that, I'm just not sure. And you know, Chuck, that, that raises a good point um, because the United States and the NATO allies they can you know, push material over borders and secretly funnel weapons to the Ukrainians. But at what point do the Russians just say, we know what you're doing, you're really, you guys are really in conflict with us, and so we're just gonna lob some missiles over into Poland or uh, the Baltic state? That's something I've been concerned about since literally the day before this started. I even suggested in a column that's a concern over the horizon. I guess the answer is so far they haven't crossed that line and uh, Putin is deterred um, from attacking uh, Western Europe uh, or Poland or uh, some you know NATO bases directly. But you're absolutely right that at a certain point if, he, if he's pushed far enough to the wall, if he's facing defeat and he feels that the only way out of that is to somehow interdict these supply lines that are coming from NATO countries into Ukraine, there's a chance he'll do it. And, and frankly, I mean, from his point of view and probably from any legitimate military point of view, that is, you know, a, a reasonable objective for him to have involved in a war. And so the, the U.S. is, I think, calibrating its assistance to avoid walking uh, up close to that line. And that's where the frustration of the Ukrainians come in because they're in a life and death struggle and they're not interested in uh, you know, mitigating the risk necessarily to other countries. They're just trying to survive. And so they're pressuring for all the support they can possibly get. Right. And I, I don't think any reasonable person would, would blame 
President Zelensky and any Ukrainian officials they see on television who are going pushing the maximum in their in their their language, their rhetoric, and their demands because it is literally a life and death situation for them. But Christine, um, given what we've seen, the Russians do attacking, lobbing missiles at bread lines, train stations, hospitals. Theaters march, you know, children outside so that the Russians won't um, won't attack. Should we be prepared for um, Vladimir Putin to lash out? Because as Chuck said, you know, his back is up against the wall, and that's all he has left. You know, I have grown more worried about that in present days. I think one of the things that may have been holding Vladimir Putin back uh, before is simply that the war was not going the way that he thought that it would. It was not fast. It was not easy. And then with the sanctions that were instituted by the international community, the Russian people and especially his close supporters on the sort of oligarch uh, government servant level were feeling some pain and maybe feeling reason to push back. But, you know, this week we've seen the ruble rebound. Russia has cut interest rates. Uh, Russian television is entirely propaganda at this point. Um, those who oppose the war have basically been pushed out of the country. It does seem that, you know, supporters are falling back in line. Putin is regaining his support and perhaps his confidence within his own country. And that might give him leverage or time to, to go forward confidence to make moves knowing that he will still have at least support from his own citizens. And that is worrisome because we've already seen that, you know, the Russian military is not holding back, does not seem to have very many scruples when it comes to civilians or children or hospitals. And as their desperation increases, as the war drags on and the sanctions seem like they're not going away, you know, what more reason will they have to hold back? Right. Right, Chuck, so we're switching gears here because we have to talk about Josh Dossie's, the post Josh Dossie's 45 minute interview with Donald Trump about January. Well, they talked a lot about, about a lot of things, but January 6th was prominent. Uh, um, Trump said he doesn't regret at all urging the crowd to, to come to Washington last January. Remember, he said, it's going to be wild. Uh, he blames Speaker Pelosi and Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser for the ransacking of the Capitol. Why is he doing this? Great question. I thought to me the most baffling but typical part of that extraordinary interview was his harping on how big the crowd was. Uh, <laughs> yes. Maybe it was the biggest crowd ever in Washington, uh, you know, and again, it was, you know, while everyone else in the country is sort of concerned about what actually happened to the Capitol building and the people in it on that day, his focus was on, you know, what, how well his ego got stroked that afternoon, and his power to call together a great crowd. It was, it, it was as if he was talking about events that had occurred, you know, in some alternative reality. I know that's a bit of cliche about him, but that's sincerely how I felt about it. And so, of course, it, you know, in a world where you, Donald Trump, are the focus of everything and by definition cannot do anything wrong or be blamed for anything, of course, he's going to look around for other scapegoats like Speaker Pelosi or Muriel Bowser. Um, I think I, I think our, one of our columnists, uh, Jason Willick, wrote this week, you know, the case against him for criminal liability is premised on the idea that he had some knowledge that what he was saying about 
January 6th was untrue. And I have to say, after this interview, I'm not sure that he did understand that he was lying. I think in his own mind, uh, everything was uh, the way he imagined it. It was really remarkable. And, and kudos to Josh Dawsey for, for a terrific uh, interview, which apparently the, his staff, Trump's staff, kept trying to cut off. But uh, Trump kept talking and allowed himself to be stopped. Right, right. Like any good journalist, you follow the lead of the principal and keep talking. If he's talking, you keep talking. You keep asking the question. So, Christine, Trump was even poo-pooing the seven and a half hour gap in the in the phone logs. Um, what's interesting is that Trump's interview with Josh comes after Jared Kushner voluntarily met with the January 6th committee and testified for, what, six hours? His daughter voluntarily testified before the January 6th committee for eight hours. Do you think that Trump talking to Dossie had anything to do with, his, with Trump's reaction to that? You know, as I will echo Chuck here and say that that interview was just remarkable and, you know, kind of crazy. We've sort of been out of Donald Trump's orbit for so long that going back into it, it really does feel like stepping into a whole new world where everything is made up and nothing makes sense. It, I'd almost forgotten how willing Donald Trump is to say anything that crosses his mind, whether it's true, false, or questionable. It does seem that he likes to pick his moments. When there is something going on in the media um, that he is not in favor of, whether it's his daughter and son-in-law testifying, yeah. whether it's you know increased visibility into what happened on January 6th, he picks his moments to enter the conversation and make it about something else entirely which may be why he chose to sort of spin out in this conversation about blaming Nancy Pelosi for not stopping the riots or blaming Muriel Bowser, or even at one point, I think my, I wouldn't say favorite moment, but a moment that left me with my jaw dropped was when he said that he had endorsed Viktor Orban's presidency in Hungary, and that is why the Hungarian election went the way yeah. that it did. He's just a master at distraction. And perhaps if he has felt in some way just a little bit of a pinch, whether it's more testimony, more criticism, he will just get out there and you know show out and distract right. in any way that he can. And we're just not used to that anymore in some ways. Right. And, you know, thank God for that. But that's just my own editorial comment. Okay, we have to talk about in the time that we have left the historic thing that happened yesterday, and that was the confirmation of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court once she takes the oath, um, um, uh, I guess, later in, in the fall to be officially Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. She'll become the, the court's 116th Associate Justice, the third African-American, but the first Black woman to sit on the high court. Um, Christine, I will start with you. Um, the significance of all this from your perspective. I mean, it's obviously just an incredibly historic event. The fact that it was passed in at least somewhat of a bipartisan manner um, shows that at least there's some understanding of that from both sides of the aisle. Um, what can one do but, you know, sort of smile and cheer and note that the United States keeps changing, but maybe moving in a better direction. It's a win for everybody, not just black women, although I think black women are especially thrilled. 
That said, you know, her joining the Supreme Court is not going to change the composition of the court. It will still be 6-3. We have already seen the Supreme Court continue to pass, you know, these under the docket rulings, um, most recently about the Clean Water Act. That shows that they're not really changing their pace or changing their direction. So it's yet to be seen what effect uh, KBJ, as we're always already calling her, will have. But we right. can still be hopeful and excited. Mm -hmm. And when you say 6-3, we're talking about the 6-3 conservative majority uh, on the court. You know, Chuck, what was interesting about uh, Judge Jackson's confirmation is it was 53-47. Um, she got three Republican votes. And why I say this is interesting, it's because the, the, the last person who was confirmed to the court, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, she confirmed to the Supreme Court with zero Democratic votes. So should we view uh, Judge Jackson's confirmation uh, vote as a glimmer of hope that the process isn't broken? Well, uh, I, I would go with glimmer of hope. Um, I think that the fact that three Republicans, uh, Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, Mitt Romney, and in Mitt Romney's case, reversing a position he had taken right. on her appeals court nomination, recognized that this was a qualified candidate for the court. She was, she had integrity. There's no particular reason to object to her. And in fact, a lot of reasons to be for her. That should be the norm in Supreme Court nominations. But to look at the half empty aspect of this, there were some really disgraceful things said by Republicans, some of whom doing it probably because they're, they're running for president want to court the Republican base against Judge Jackson. And I have to say that Tom Cotton's statement on the Senate floor suggesting that she would have eagerly defended the Nazis at, at Nuremberg was a real cheap shot. I mean, worse than a cheap shot. And so it's unfortunate that that kind of rhetoric uh, surfaced during this. Um, so let's say the cup is, uh, you know, a, a millimeter or two above half full. Uh, and I would echo, I think it's important to uh, restate what Christine emphasized, which is this is historic in terms of the membership of the court and breaking through uh, a longstanding uh, barrier, so to speak, but the actual composition ideologically of the court will remain pretty much the same. And so in terms of policy and law, not much is likely to change in the mm -hmm. short run. And you know, Chuck, I like that you said that um, the cup is a millimeter or two above half full. I, I would just point out that the fact that Senator Lindsey Graham said that if the Republicans take over the uh, Senate majority, that President Biden would not, his a nominee to the court, would not get a hearing from him in the fact that um, Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell told Axios, I believe yesterday, um, echoed those sentiments. That millimeter or two above half full um, will evaporate below, <laughs> below half full. And so there with our science conversation, um, we gotta go. Christine Emba, Charles Lane, thank you both very much for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Thank you, Jonathan. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.